We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. Well, welcome again to uh, Cathedral Bible Study on Colossians. It's a letter that Paul has written to the Christians who never met him. But who is Paul? And why is he so important? Why do Christians go on about Paul? Why do Bible believers insist on referring to Paul? Well, let's start with God's plan. For the world is not a meaningless accident. God created it for a purpose and for a plan. And he didn't create it and then leave it alone, he's created it and continues to watch over it to bring about his plan to supervise the history of the world to come to his conclusion. Everything is going according to plan, his plan. And God has chosen to make known his plan in the Old Testament. Bit by bit, piece by piece, as he reveals it by this prophet or that prophet or another prophet, So the plan of God is being built up over the thousand years or more that the Old Testament was written. But the prophets never gathered it all together. The information was there, but it wasn't unified. It was all left dangling, unfulfilled, with little bits unexplained, without any sense of of what the finality would be. The mystery was God's plan. That is, God's plan was a mystery. God's plan was a secret. He told us in the Old Testament what was to happen, but he told it to us in such a way that we didn't understand it until it happened. And then hindsight kicks in and you suddenly realise Now that it's happened, yes, that's what it was all about all along. And you look back and you wonder how on earth you could have missed it, because it was clearly there. But that's after the event. Before the event, there's just these jigsaw pieces that you can't work out how to put them together. That was God's plan was a secret. Unfortunately, the Greek word for secret, this particular word, is the word Mysterion. It means secret, but it actually lies behind the English word mystery, and that gives us a problem because we translate it mystery, but that's not really a translation, that's just using the same words, mysterion, mystery. But the meaning of the mysterion is secret. You see, the problem is that the English word mystery means something that's inscrutable, something that's mysterious, something that's incomprehensible, something that's, that's impenetrable. But this is, it's, it's not like that. It's not deep and mysterious and unfathomable. It just is a secret. A secret is something that's hidden, something that hasn't yet been told to you, something that is private. But it could be told to you and then you would understand it very simply. Uh, for many of you, my middle name is a secret. It's a mystery. 
It's not very mysterious. It's not very difficult. You know, there's nothing deep to fathom about it. You just haven't never been told my middle name. I'll tell you my middle name. It's David. It's a good middle name. Straightforward. There's nothing mysterious about that name, is it? I mean, now that you know it, you know it. Before you didn't know it, now you do know it. It was a secret. Now it's been revealed. Now that it's been revealed, you don't have to spend days and days pondering the inner significance of the meaning of David, do you? It's You now know the secret. Well, God has a secret. He has a plan which he doesn't tell you. While he tells you all kinds of bits and pieces of the information of what it's about, it's still kept secret from you. And this is the mystery that's referred to three times in the passage before us. For you see the mystery, verse 26 of chapter 1, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. Verse 27, this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And down again in chapter 2, verse 3, it speaks of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. But what is the mystery? What is the secret? Well, it's how great among the Gentiles. That's what it's about. That is, Paul spells it out here for us in verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the word Gentiles just means nations. It's the everyday Greek word for nations, especially in the Bible, all the nations other than the Jews, other than Israel. And so the mystery has the secret about the nations. That is the secret of God's worldwide plan. For as you're reading the Old Testament, you are fairly conscious of God's plan for Israel. But yet if you read your Old Testaments carefully... God's plans for Israel are actually a plan for the whole world as well, for the nations as well. And the secret of how great among the nations are the riches of God's glory. What glory? What glory of God is there among the nations? The answer is Christ. Christ in you. For the mystery is Christ. The secret is Christ. But it's not just that it is Christ, it's that the Christ is not the Christ of Israel only. The Christ is the Christ of the nations also. The Christ is the Christ of the whole world. So it is Christ amongst you, Gentiles that is, amongst you in the nations. That's the great mystery. The Jew read his Old Testament. Over and over he would read his Old Testament, but the veil upon his face that protected him and prevented him from reading and understanding the Old Testament properly also lay in the fact that God didn't want it understood properly yet. There was a secret that God had, that when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, he will come not just for Israel, but also for the whole world. So Christ is the mystery. And you see, it looks forward to Christ the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Saviour of Israel, God's King. But you miss that Christ the Messiah is God's King of the nations, that Christ the Messiah is God's Saviour of the nations. Israel knew it needed to be saved, but it presumed the nations were beyond salvation. The judge of all the worlds, the Messiah who comes to save Israel, will condemn the nations. 
But no, God's plan was to save the nations, just as he was to save Israel. That is, God's plan centres on Christ. The plan of God in the universe was not about the Apostle Paul, was not about the Colossians, and was not about you, it's not about me. The plan of God in the world centres on Christ. One of our problems as sinful human beings is that we actually think God's plan should all be about me. Well, you think about you. It's the character of us. We want to know what is God's plan for me. But what we've got to do is find out what is God's plan. The for me bit is fairly unimportant. We may fit into the plan. We may not fit into the plan. How we fit into the plan. We've got to understand his plan. And his plan centers not on us, but on Christ. For he is the one about whom God has done all things. And when Christ is in his place, in clear perspective, then our part and the Apostle Paul's part and the Colossians' part can also fall into perspective. So today's passage starts with Christ's afflicted body. For when Christ, when uh, people persecute Christians, they really are persecuting Christ's body, the church. That is, they're really persecuting Christ. Saul was a man from Tarsus, a leader of the Jews, who couldn't stand Christians and started killing Christians and imprisoning Christians. And on the roads of Damascus, where he was to kill some more and to capture some more, the vision came of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And the voice came, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, not Christians, why are you persecuting me? So Saul the persecutor became Paul the apostle. And he understood persecution, he understood suffering from both sides, for he had persecuted and was now being persecuted. So we read in today's reading, chapter 1, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister. He was suffering... But he was suffering for the Gentile Christians. He was suffering for Christ's body. He was suffering from the church. For in this fallen world, in this sinful world, persecution is normal. Suffering is normal. It's not abnormal to suffer. It's abnormal to go without suffering. For all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, we're told. The fact that we're not persecuted may be a great blessing of God at the moment, but it also may be an indication that we're not really desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. I mean, if you keep your head down, you don't mention you're a Christian, you don't stand up for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ or for righteousness and morality. If you just go along with the sinful world, I guess you won't suffer too much. But if you stand for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in this society, you can expect to be persecuted. But when people persecute you, They're persecuting Christ. There is the difference. In this fallen world, we must expect sufferings for the Christ. Not at all meaning, of course, we're going to suffer the atoning sufferings of Christ, but we are completing, we are accomplishing Christ's suffering. Christ suffered once for all on the cross to pay for our sins, but he rose again and continues to put up with the sufferings of a fallen world 
in order to give time for people to repent and come to salvation. Christ can stop the sufferings of the world right now. But your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving colleagues, your unbelieving family will then come to judgment and condemnation. And so we pray, Lord, come, but wait. We want him to wait to give time for repentance. Well, we want him to come quickly to put end to the sufferings. I rejoice, says Paul, for the sufferings because I'm accomplishing, I'm filling up the sufferings of the Christ for your sake. So the plan of God centers on Christ and the sufferings of the apostle, they're still Christ's suffering. And the work of the apostle is to make known God's mystery of Christ among you or in you. Notice again his work centers on Christ. It's about making Christ known to the nations. This is Paul's work for which he suffers, verse 25 following, for, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery, hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory that the nations who were hopeless and godless can now hope in God is the work of the gospel coming out into all the world. For Christ was for more than Israel, he was for all the nations. This flows on from last week's study, if you remember back there in verses 15 to 20, that Christ is the Lord of creation. Everything was made by him, everything was made through him, everything was made for him. And Christ is the Lord of the age to come as well. He's the firstborn, not only of the creation, but the firstborn from the resurrection from the dead. That in everything he would be preeminent. That is, Christ is more than just the king of Jews. Christ is the ruler and creator and judge of all the world. And so Paul says, him we proclaim. Our message is Christ. That is the content of the message. That is, on the front you see, what are you living for, is changed to who are you living for? For it is Christ for whom we live. And it is Christ is the message, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone, with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 28 is like a mission statement for the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul's task is to proclaim Christ, nobody else, nothing else. And in proclaiming Christ, he aims to present everyone, every man, every human, mature in Christ. The message and the purpose of the message is the same, Christ. I proclaim Christ so that everyone will be Christ-like, so that everyone will grow to be like Christ. That is, because God's mystery is Christ. Chapter 2 at the end of verse 2 there, God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This was the hidden arrow in God's quiver. This was the, the central piece of the jigsaw puzzle on life, the key to God's plans and purpose. It was Christ, the creator of the world, the redeemer of the world, the Lord of this life and the Lord of the life to come in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. For if you know Christ, 
you know life. But where there is no Christ, there is no life. Either way you say it, it's right. No Christ, no life. Once you have this key to the secret to God's plans, then all other wisdom and all other knowledge come into perspective and clarity. There was a time when I didn't have my glasses. And as my years rolled on and my eyes became harder and harder to focus and as I take them off now, I can see that you're there, but I can't see your faces clearly if you're beyond about the fourth row. It gets beyond there, you become more and more a blob and up the back, I'm just sure it's a human, but I can't be positive. However, once I put the glasses on, then I can see it's not a human, it's Jono. It's actually much better than a human. It's a particular, specific human. I can see the smile on the face. I can see he's wearing a name tag. I can actually pick him out. Without Christ, I can see, but I don't know what I'm seeing. I can understand, but I don't know what I'm understanding. But once you have Christ the king of creation for whom everything is created and by whom everything is created, and Christ, the one who has died for the sins of the whole world, in whom the fullness of God dwelt bodily and who's risen from the dead now as the ruler of the age to come. Once you've got that, it's like putting on your glasses. Suddenly all the other wisdom and knowledge of the world makes sense. So then, what was Paul's part in God's plan? Well, firstly, he was the one who could suffer and he rejoiced in his sufferings back there in 24 for he now understood the meaning and purpose of life. He understood the meaning and purpose of his sufferings, that through dying for others comes life for them. That's why he was dying to serve. See, what Jesus did on the cross was unique and repeatable. It was unique for only Jesus could die on the cross for our sins. But it was repeatable for anyone who wants to follow the Lord Jesus must also take up their cross. We must also lay down our lives for others that they may be served, saved. We also must lay down our lives and suffer as part of his suffering. So what Jesus did, only Jesus could do. But because Jesus did it, we too must do it. We too must live as people who serve by laying down our lives for other people that they may be saved. Secondly, Paul has a stewardship from God, verse 25. He was not self-appointed, but God-appointed to a task. Not just saved on the road to Damascus, but commissioned on the road to Damascus to serve, to lay down his life for the nation's. He was going around taking people's lives. Now he had to go around giving his own life. It's a marvellous illustration of what it means to become a Christian. That you no longer live to take, but to give. Because you are now following the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't come to take, but to give his life as a ransom for many. And his stewardship, this God-given, was for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery, the secret hidden for centuries that Christ was for the Gentiles, the nations. 
Here was the man who was the Jew of the Jew, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the most extremely zealous Jewish man that you could find, who now has the responsibility to spend all his life preaching to the Gentiles, to the pagans, to the nations. And this work of making the word of God fully known involved proclaiming, warning and teaching, verse 28. He wasn't just announcing, though that is essential to the activity, proclaiming Jesus Christ, but also warning everybody. Warning the Epicurean philosopher and the Stoic philosopher. Warning the Jew and warning the idolater that they must stop the way they're living, turn back and acknowledge the king. Warning the Buddhist, warning the Muslim, warning the secularist of the judgment of God that is coming upon all who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and of the salvation and forgiveness that is available to all who turn back and acknowledge Jesus Christ. The activity of proclaiming Christ as the unique one and only saviour of all mankind is an activity of warning people that without him they are lost and face the condemnation of eternity. Most people don't mind the first half of John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth and the life. Sounds nice. It's the second half of John 14, 6, which very few people like. There is no way to the Father but by me. If the first is true, the second also is true. If he is the way, then there is no other way. He's not a way. The claim is he is the way. And so he warns everyone and he teaches everyone. Whoever wishes to be hearing. Friends, do keep inviting people to to Cathedral Bible study, won't you? It's only as people hear about the Lord Jesus Christ that they will come to salvation. Do keep inviting so that we may teach everyone and anyone. Using the energy, he says, for the struggle, for the energy that God gave Paul, the energy which is God's energy, he calls it. See, your life, your energy, is not your own, it's God's. He gives us the energy to do whatever it is that we do, given by God to be used for his glory, not for our own selfish ends. And so he proclaims Christ in a struggle. For it is a struggle in a fallen world to proclaim Christ. It's not easy. This is not the broad, wide road that leads to destruction. It is the hard and narrow road of hostility and opposition as you call upon people to stop living the way they're living and to turn back and live a different way. It's not a popular message. We must never expect it will be. It will be opposed because people in a sinful world are opposed to God and opposed to his message. So Paul keeps on struggling. Notice how it says in chapter 2, I want you to know, verse 1, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged. This is a struggling, but it's a struggling at the end of chapter 1, verse 29 there, a struggling by the energy that God has given. But for Paul also, there is the absent joy to see the good order and the firmness of the faith that people have. 
Yesterday I heard of a man that I haven't seen for 25 years. He's in California, an academic. That's what he left Australia to be, PhD in mathematics, lecturing in mathematics. I just heard about him yesterday. It's wonderful to hear he stands firmly as a Christian, having raised a Christian family. He's given up being an academic. He's a pastor of a Vietnamese church. What joy there is to know that a man that I was responsible for under God to lead to Christ 25, 30 years ago stands firm now. What joy. It was a great day yesterday to hear that news. Paul has great encouragement at seeing the good order and the firmness of faith of these people. This was then all to the Colossians' benefit. Paul was suffering for your sake, not for his own, but for their sake. Paul had stewardship from God for them. You see it there. He was chosen to serve God for them. And he was proclaiming that everyone, teaching everyone, warning everyone, Paul's life was lived for them, not for him. No one enters into this kind of activity for their own sake. But it is for their sake that Paul was doing it. So Paul was engaged in a struggle, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, for you. And for all the people that have never even so much as heard of me, that I've never met, like the people in Laodicea, his struggle was for them that they might have the full assurance of the knowledge of the plan of God, that they too were saved. Paul lived and struggled for our sake. For Paul's joy was about people he'd never seen, just knowing that they were Christians. You see, Paul was God's man and our apostle. He was God's man for the task of world evangelization, who was following his Lord and following his Lord's example of laying down his life to save others. Do not reject the apostle Paul, friends, or allow people to speak ill of him, for he is our apostle. Unless you're Jewish, he's your apostle. For if Paul was not right that the Lord Jesus Christ was for all mankind, then you need to be a Jew in order to be a Christian. He is our apostle. Do not reject him, but be committed to the Christ he preached. But if you are committed to the Christ he preached, then you'll also be committed to world evangelization. For the Christ he preached was not just the Christ of Israel, but the Christ of of this age and of the age to come. So those who are not concerned about the lost are generally the lost. For being concerned about the whole world coming under the Lord Jesus Christ is part of acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Christ of the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your servant Paul and for his ministry in bringing the message of Christ to the world. Thank you that you revealed your secret to him, that Christ is for all people. And we thank you especially, Father, because we are those people for whom Paul laboured and lost his life so that we might know of your son, whose labour and loss of life is our salvation. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.